Hello everyone and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we talk about everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, joined as always by my co-host Eric. Greetings, Earthlings. Alright, so on this episode, we'll be talking all about close encounters with extraterrestrial life. Yeah, so we're going to discuss some of the more famous, well-known alien abductions as well as a little bit of introductory information about some crop circles and some other sort of alien experiences that are common in this day and age. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of suggestions for different alien encounters and sightings and stuff, so we combined a few of our favorites into this episode, which we'll be talking about for all you listeners now. So I don't know what you think about aliens, Sean. I mean, it's always kind of been a fascinating subject for me. It's kind of selfish, in my opinion, to think that we're alone in the universe and that we're somehow special. We're on this teeny tiny little planet Earth, and yet the universe is, is endless. So I mean, yeah. what, what do you think? Do you think we're alone in the universe? Or? Uh, well, I'm of the opinion that I don't really think it matters whether we're actually alone or not. I don't think that we're actually going to be able to contact any life forms, at least in our lifetime. Um, whether there actually is intelligent life forms out there, I kind of go back and forth on. I mean, on one hand, there's just, you know, so many millions of planets and star systems, you think that there'd have to be something going on. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of cool if in the entire universe, there's only this one planet with us humans on it. I would actually be a little disappointed if we were the only life form in the entire universe and we're confined to this this one solar system at the moment, but in my opinion, it kind of, it kind of, I take a more scientific approach to an extent, I suppose, more literal approach. I mean, it depends on how you define alien extraterrestrial. I mean, if we count a microbe or some sort of microscopic life form, then yeah, I don't, I don't see what the big deal is with that. I think there could be microbial life in other areas in the universe. I don't think that's too far-fetched, but some of the more modern explanations for, or interpretations for alien life, like the, the grays and the green men and stuff like that. And then like even what we see in cartoons, like monsters, Inc. I mean, if this is, if that's how we define aliens, then no, I think there's pro it's probably not um, to that extent, but I certainly think there might be some, um, some sort of extraterrestrial life for sure. Yeah, perhaps some kind of uh, multi-dimensional beings or something that don't exactly work with our laws of physics that allow them to visit us when otherwise it'd be pretty much impossible. Exactly. And, you know, to think, you know, what, what really draws the line between extraterrestrial life and what some people might consider to be angels and or God or some, some religious persona that might just be contained within the these outer dimensions that we can't even perceive as human beings right. that are confined to three-dimensional space and one-dimensional time. So I think our first topic that we were going to kind of delve into was actually suggested by one of my co-residents at the hospital we work at. Her name is Kellen, and she has suggested that we provide a little bit of discussion regarding crop circles. 
So what are crop circles? Well, essentially, my research has led me to understand them as artistic, beautiful, and sometimes difficult to explain patterns or pictures carved out of a field of crops. And usually these are only clearly visible from some sort of aerial view. They're not always even simply circles. However, the crops are usually bent over at the stalk in like a, a swirl pattern is what it's called. So regardless of the exact pattern, these formations are, in most cases, extremely intricate. And the sun sets one evening, and when it arises the next day, the, these strange unexplained patterns have been tamped into the landscape overnight. That's one of the things that the most interesting about these, I mean, whether they are actually caused by something else or just by pranksters. I mean, just the fact of being able to do all this in one night and, you know, during night. And I mean, some of these designs are just like unreal that you can see like with the, with the aerial views. It's just, I mean, it's crazy for them, whoever it is, to be able to plan it all out and get it done. Yeah. And kind of like you said, some crop circles appear to be more along the lines of an artist's imagination while many take on a more bizarre and unexplained appearance. So these bizarre shapes and patterns, coupled with the speed with which they manifest themselves, leads many people to believe that these geometric phenomena are the works of otherworldly visitors. And these patterns are oftentimes so precise that it would appear as though it was produced by a machine. Interestingly, many times, if it's done properly, these crops are simply bent at the stem rather than actually being broken, and frequently the crops continue to grow and produce fruit, um, even after having been part of a crop circle. Crop circles, unsurprisingly, have been around for centuries, with some of the earliest reports dating back to the 1500s. There is a 17th century piece of artwork that depicts a devilish creature producing crop circles, and this creature is known as the Mowing Devil. I didn't know that. I mean, as far as I knew before this episode, I just figured that they started like in the 70s or something, like kind of when all the UFO craze happened. I had no idea that it dated back hundreds of years. No, you're right. Um, and the, and the, yeah, that's the interesting part is that. While it definitely did pick up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when it really started to get big, like we just said, there are reports that date back several centuries, which definitely lends a certain level of credence to some of these phenomenon. So in an 1880 issue of a journal called Nature, a scientist who is named Jean Caprone ported on a formation that was found in England. And he described it, in his own words, as a field of standing wheat considerably knocked about, not as an entirety, but in patches, forming, as viewed from a distance, circular spots. And he later says, I could not trace locally any circumstances accounting for the peculiar forms of the patches in the field. They were suggestive to me of some cyclonic wind action. So obviously this guy from the 1880s, he's not as smart as us in the 21st century with our Facebook and Google, but that's just kind of how he explains what he's experiencing, just some strange phenomena without a clear logical explanation, and he's just kind of putting it into his own interpretation. 
So mention of these strange formations were actually very sporadic and uncommon prior to the 20th century. However, in the 1960s and 70s, reports really began to begin surfacing more frequently. And then in 1980, an English farmer discovered several circle-shaped crop circles in his own field, each about 60 feet across. After this event, reports began popping up all over the world. Then by the end of the 1990s, over 500 reports of crop circles occurred in England alone, and they started to become more of a tourist attraction at this point. Some farmers would even charge admission fees to have investigators and tourists come catch a glimpse of these mysterious formations. I wonder how much money they can make from charging people at the risk of, you know, losing some of their crop. You know, maybe if they're they think they're not going to make their yield, they're like, you know what, I'm just going to flatten, make a few circles, yeah. charge guys 20 bucks to come look at it. Yeah, I'm sure there are definitely a lot of people out there who, at the time, would pay a lot of money to come check this kind of thing out. But kind of like we said, um, I mean, a lot of times, if it's done properly, it the some of the crops will even continue to, to grow. But by this time, there even existed a group of loyal enthusiasts who dubbed themselves Syriologists. And this was named after the Roman god Ceres, who was the god of crops and farming, agriculture, stuff like that. And these individuals romanticized about crop circles and believed them to be proof of extraterrestrials or what's known as plasma vortices, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the majority of these formations were found in southern England in many near mysterious sites such as Stonehenge. However, they have been sighted all over the world. But my kind of question is, what is really capable of producing such beautiful and unexplained patterns so carefully and elaborately manipulated in as little as a single night? So overall, there are three prevailing theories that we will discuss, and the most common and interesting theory being that they are the product of aliens or UFOs. So this theory, popularized by movies such as Signs with Mel Gibson, entails that these formations are either the remains of a previously landed alien craft or some sort of road sign to indicate their, their presence or their passing. And many people report seeing UFO-like crafts and unexplained lights emanating from the areas. Similarly, however, some people think the explanation lies in more of a man-made craft, such as helicopters or some sort of plane. The thought is that these machines generate downward wind in the form of thrust in order to provide lift. However... Controlled experiments have been unable to produce these crop circles using similar flying machines. Yeah, I mean, I don't buy that it's man-made in the terms of, like, helicopters or planes. I mean, I think everyone's seen helicopters take off from fields and stuff, and it, I mean, the wind just kind of thrashes all about. I don't think it's capable of creating these intricate patterns without actually damaging the plant life itself. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I mean, it might explain some things by the loosest definition of the phrase crop circle, 
but I don't think a lot of the ones that we, we typically see and consider to be true crop circles, I think they're just far too intricate to be created by accident. Yeah, I mean, in terms of UFOs, I mean, obviously we wouldn't have an understanding really of their crafts or what kind of propulsion they use. But I don't know, I, I don't really get the crafts themselves, like the, the landing theory. I, I just don't see, like, if a craft lands and it creates this. Yeah. Same thing with the helicopter. I mean, whatever their lift or propulsion system is, I would think it's similar to, like, you know, either a jet or a rocket or a helicopter, and it wouldn't make these weird vortexes of circles all over the place. Right. I mean, I could see it destroying an entire circle of crops and, like, disintegrating it, maybe. Right. If it's some sort of alien technology that we don't fully understand, um, but very carefully bending them over into a perfect circular pattern doesn't really make sense to me either, so I kind of agree with what you're saying. And then with the, um, you know, people say, like, it's kind of like the road signs of UFOs and aliens. I mean, they made it to Earth. Do they really need, like, oh, man, where's that, that crop sign to tell me which way to go or, or something? Yeah. I, I don't really, I never really understood that theory. People were like, no, it's, you know, it's a way to tell. Unless it's kind of like a like a stamp or something, like graffiti. Right. Uh, if, but, you're, if you're an alien, be like, you know, this is my mark. I'm going to put it in this crop so that way other aliens who come to the planet know, you know, this is my turf or something like that. Right. And it'll be gone in a few months to a year. Though. Yeah. So it doesn't really make sense to just do that in some crops. I mean, carve your, your symbol into the side of a mountain. If you have the technology to travel light years to Earth, then, you know, do something more permanent. Yeah. Unless they're just trolling us or something. Just be like. You know, it's meaningless to them, but they're like, yeah, they're, they're going to spend centuries puzzling over this. Well, it's, it's working. So here we are. So one of the other explanations is that, you know, moving away from the UFO alien theory, a lot of people think it's a completely natural occurrence. And some of the more scientific explanations say that these formations are sometimes caused by sudden gusts of wind known as vortices which is the plural for a, a vortex, so similar to like a twister or something. And the result of these columns of wind is wind is a sudden downward force that is able to flatten large areas of crops. And it's believed that these sorts of natural vortices form easily in hilly areas, which is uh, a common topographical feature in southern England where so many of these crop circles have been found more specifically there's something known as a plasma vortex and this is a sudden gust of wind that supposedly stirs up dust particles and all this friction inside of the vortex causes them to become electrically charged and then these particles actually with their charges can emit light in the form of a sort of low glow that would kind of show up at nighttime, and that would explain some of the lights that people tend to report seeing when they notice crop formations. However, again, kind of like with the helicopter theory, this doesn't really explain the complexity and geometric precision of some of the crop circles and how they're you know, so neatly stacked and laid across each other. Yeah, if you haven't, look up some pictures of crop circles now. And, I mean, just looking at some of the more intricate ones, I, I, that's, that can't be natural. I mean, if it was just, like, 
one circle or like you want kind of shape but when you have like all these different circles all connected and like outward in a spiral that's not natural i mean some some of them maybe some of the more simple designs but you would think that if something like this would have been caught on camera or proven by now if this is the case where decades later it's these kind of weird <clears throat> these kind of weird wind vortices that are causing these but then again you know at the same time and we i mean we can't really necessarily underestimate nature because i mean if you think about it like on a molecular scale graphite for example or you know ice just frozen crystals frozen ice they all form very specific patterns so in, in very geometric repeating homogeneous patterns so one other theory that kind of goes along with the natural phenomena explanation is that some researchers believe these crop circles are formed by the earth's energy now when i say this i'm not talking about like chi or like a druid elf hippie type earth energy but more like no offense to you hippies out there but rather energy that we scientifically know is actually produced by the Earth. For example, like electromagnetic radiation. So I could see something, some sort of natural Earth force like electromagnetic radiation producing a very specific pattern in, in some sense. I mean, it kind of goes to the uh, chaos theory, you know, how if you look deep enough to any natural organism, you'll see a very specific pattern. Um, and scientists have actually measured strong magnetic, magnetic fields in some of the crop circles. And some people actually report feeling a strange tingling sensation while standing in the middle of these formations. Oh, it could just be like, you know, if you're in a uncomfortable or new situation, you know, some people feel like, you know, pins and needles. So I mean, it could just be like a placebo effect. Yeah. Um, if it's not some weird energy coming up from the earth and if it is wouldn't it come in like other locations why is it always in crop fields right that that's what that's kind of what breaks this for me i mean it's definitely super subject subjective the first part the the strange tingling sensation that people experience i mean so what i yeah i, I experience strange tingling sensations at times as well um if well, if i'm nervous or any kind of human emotion sometimes produces strange feelings like that but but yeah i agree with that last part you said i think that the fact that so many of them are localized to specific areas on earth would actually suggest in my opinion that this could be related to the earth's energy because you know we have very specific poles on the earth however if this was the case one would think that similar patterns would be seen in you know like you said sean tall grasses or or crowds of people um yeah like you said why is it always just crops that would be awesome to see this though crop circle and just this crowd of people or something like it's like a, a concert and all of a sudden everyone just like started bending over at all these weird angles and yeah stuff. people just like get flattened yeah. or whatever so yeah in the early 90s there was an american biophysicist named dr william livingood and he discovered that crops in circles were damaged much in the same way as plants heated in a microwave. He proposed that the idea that some of these crops were being rapidly heated from the inside by some kind of microwave energy. 
So that's another Earth force that could possibly explain some of it. However, in general, I tend to go more along with the elaborate hoax theory, and this is possibly the least far-fetched theory that may explain these events. It could be that some particularly skilled individuals are either trying to stump mankind or even that they are simply out there to leave their artistic mark on society. Now, one of the most famous sets of individuals that actually can produce some of the more intricate and elaborate crop circles are known as Doug and Dave. These pranksters announced in 1991 that since 1978 they had created hundreds of crop circles in England and as proof allowed a documentary to be filmed on them showing these artists creating yet another masterpiece with some surprisingly extremely simple hand tools. Yeah, I think I've seen, I don't know the specific, but I know I've seen some videos on YouTube where it does show a group of people making these, and like I said, they just kind of have these, kind of looks like brooms, but like, that are like thick and hard. They're carrying these things that are kind of just, they kind of push them around, and it just moves in a circle and just kind of flattens the, the wheat over, or whatever it is. Right. So, now that these videos have come to life, it definitely shows that humans are capable of making these crop circles. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a possible explanation. Um, I mean, to me, I wouldn't have much motivation to go out and spend 13 thankless years making crop circles and reaping no benefit from it. I mean, it's not going to pay any money. It's essentially a waste of time. But, I mean, if, if these guys say they did it and they're that's able to the, prove it... That's one heck of a long con to pull 13 years. That's what I'm saying. See, I'd, just, be, I'd be afraid that someone else would do it once and then take credit for all of them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be very much benefit for it. But, actually, there are steps online of how to create your very own crop circle but watch out because whoever owns the crops will probably get a little pissed off if they catch you but in all seriousness you can tell a lot of the crop circles are man-made simply because some of them are just so elaborate you know if you look some of these crop circles i mean why would aliens even bother making something like that i mean i've seen crop circles that were pictures of middle fingers pictures of marijuana leaves so some of these you know are just there's just no sense that aliens would actually do this but basically if it's something that 8th grade boys doodle in their notebook and it's in a crop field you can pretty much rest assured that a human made that but you know some of the simpler circular ones are the ones that are a little more intriguing to me because it seems more plausible that they could have come from more mysterious origins right so in terms of explanations, I personally think it's a certain combination of the different theories. I would think that a lot of them are in fact man-made, in fact probably the majority. Uh, however, some of them, especially the earlier ones dating back several centuries, you know, probably in my opinion a little more difficult to explain, probably something more abnormal. And there was actually a man named Colin Andrews who was a seriologist. 
he wrote in one of his books that he suspected about 80% of crop circles are man-made, but that 20% are created by some higher force. I think that's a little a little generous of an estimate to say 20%. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the majority of ones I've seen, I think, are pretty clearly man-made. Um, but with a few exceptions, a few of them I can see either something natural or, you know, the lifting off of a ship or something. But, you know, I honestly kind of hope he's right because that would be that would be pretty cool to think that some of these crop circles are actually from legitimate extraterrestrial visitors or something like that maybe this is like their graffiti yeah yeah they're just just screwing around with us so in august of 2001 two witnesses in holland reported seeing columns of light descending on a field of string beans and the next day they were shocked to find a crop circle exactly where the light had contacted the earth other individuals report experiencing strange physical and emotional sensations when near these crop circles, but again, this is an extremely subjective account. And some women, this is where things get interesting, some women have experienced changes in their menstrual period, while one group of postmenopausal women immediately after visiting a site near Stonehenge, immediately all of them began menstruating so that's pretty disturbing in my opinion it's not the best souvenir you want to take from a trip like this definitely not could definitely lead to some some potential accidents think you're postmenopausal and suddenly you, your cycle starts up again but I don't know I don't really understand all that there's certainly nothing more mysterious than the female reproductive cycle to me, no offense to anybody, but in all seriousness, that's a pretty interesting anomaly. So, you know, I, I kind of would like to associate some of these crop circles with aliens, but, I mean, there's a lot of other explanations out there that might lend credence to the alien theory, and I think one of the first first stories we're going to talk about is a particular alien abduction that occurred back in the 1960s. That's known as the Hill Abduction. Right, so this is going to be a discussion about the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill, and this was an idea that was sent in from Matt, who wrote to us on Facebook. And this Hill Abduction is... One of the first majorly widespread reported incidents of an alien abduction. This alien abduction event is probably one of the more popular cases surrounding UFOs and has spawned a couple of books and movies based on the event. And it's pretty much the basis for almost any abduction story you kind of hear in the modern age. It's probably one of the more research cases over the years, and it's being believed and debated by many people. It's probably the most popular UFO story, second only to Roswell, which we actually covered in one of our earlier episodes. So this alleged UFO encounter took place in 1961. What makes this mysterious tale so fascinating is the incredible amount of detail that is given by the couple about this abduction. So there are a lot of twists and turns to this abduction story, and we're going to go into as much detail as we can, see if we can get to the bottom of just what exactly happened to these two people that night. So as for the couple themselves, Barney and Betty Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. 
and Barney worked for the U.S. Postal Service, and Betty was a social worker. Both of them were pretty active in the social rights scene at the time, as they were strong advocates to fight against the racial injustices of the country at the time. And the married couple were all too familiar with that, as they were actually an interracial couple at that time. For those unfamiliar during this time in America, there was a lot of unrest for the, the races for the, at that time, and being an interracial couple was pretty uncommon, if not dangerous in some areas. So along with being well-respected leaders of their community, the Hills also worked with the NAACP, and Barney actually is part of the local board of Civil Rights Commission. So basically what I'm trying to say is that these two people were very well-educated, they were hardworking, well-respected members of the community. Basically the last two people that you would think of that would create some kind of crazy story about alien abduction. Part of that is why that kind of gives some form of credibility to their testimonies later on. I'm trying to put myself in their shoes as a reasonably well-educated individual. I can definitely see the attraction to getting a bunch of publicity from making up some crazy story like this, especially being the first person. Um, it may be a little bit more difficult to get my wife in on it. But, I don't know, it, it would be difficult for me to go to such lengths to have the potential to smear my own professional name. Um, so I think, you know, it, it def- I agree with you, it definitely lends a certain amount of credence to their story. Because if they weren't telling the truth, they would have the potential to be laughed out of their professional organizations. Exactly, I mean, we mentioned that. In a couple of episodes about aliens, where it's just if you, if someone come up to you and told you that they were abducted by alien, the first thing you would think of is like, oh, this is a crazy person, and you immediately tune them out. So yeah, in, in order to actually go public with this story, it, it's either a risky hoax to try to get more publicity, or it could be something that actually happened to them. Right, and if, if you've got nothing to lose, like literally, then you got nothing to lose. There's nothing holding you back from making making up a story like this. So these people apparently had a lot to lose. Right, so let's start talking about the actual UFO encounter. So this happened in September 19th of 1961, and Barney and Betty were returning from a trip from Niagara Falls, and they were driving back to Portsmouth. So at this time, it was late in the night, and the couple was cruising towards home on mostly empty roads. And as they were driving, something caught Betty's eye. She looked up into the night sky and saw something quite unusual. So she claims that she saw a very bright light up above, but it wasn't just a star or or anything. This light seemed to be moving, and as she watched it, it moved from a place just below the moon, and then travel to a position upwards and to the west of the moon. So when Barney asked what she was looking at, she said that it looked like it was a shooting star, except it was falling upwards into the sky instead of falling. So as Barney kept driving down the road, Betty was kept her eyes on this strange light that was up in the sky, and kept on saying that it wasn't simply moving in a straight line, but instead seemed to be maneuvering and traveling around in random directions. Also, Betty saw with some alarm that whatever this thing was, it appeared that it was growing larger in the sky, suggesting it was coming closer and closer with each passing minute. It's kind of a terrifying 
thing. You're out on a some podunk country road at night, and you see something bizarre in the night sky. Not only is it bizarre, but it's getting closer and closer. That would definitely freak me out. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like the the classic setting. You're in the the woods, isolated, you know, roads. It's pitch black at night, and you see something coming towards you. Yeah, it's a scene right out of a horror movie. So, I mean, Betty urged Barney to stop the car. She wanted to get a no-stable close look at whatever it was up in the sky. So Barney got out a pistol that he kept in the trunk for protection, just in case he ran into anything dangerous while he stepped out of the car. So Betty got out the binoculars, and she started looking up at this object, which she said was an odd-shaped craft that was flashing colorful lights. Barney then took a turn looking through the binoculars, and he thought at first that it was just a commercial airliner. Suddenly, though, this aircraft, or whatever it is, seemed to immediately change its direction and altitude without actually having to turn, which caused Barney to doubt his initial idea. So as the craft appeared to be rapidly descending in their direction, Barney ran back to the car and drove away. Probably a smart move. So as they were driving along and continuing to study this object, Betty estimated that she thinks it was about 60 or so feet long and seemed to be rotating while it traveled. So it kind of sounds like the classic flying saucer that we're all familiar with today. As they continued down this isolated road, the couple watched as the aircraft flew through the night sky completely silent but still glowing brightly as it moved erratically above them. Suddenly, this object descended towards them, and Barney slammed on the brakes and stopped his car in the middle of the highway, and the pair watched as this large craft hovered some short distance in the air above them. So Barney again grabbed his pistol and put it in his pocket and stepped out of the car and moved closer. And so he was using his binoculars. Barney claims that he saw a small group of humanoid-looking beings who were looking at him through the windows of the craft. And the beings to him appear to be wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. The craft then slowly drifted closer to him, getting to as close as about 300 feet and, and only 50 feet off the ground. So, some years after this incident, Barney reported to NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, that these beings were somehow not human. So at this point, Barney had had enough with his situation and just sprinted back to his car. Betty recalls him screaming, they're going to capture us. So he got in his car and sped off, telling Betty to keep an eye out on where the craft was. It's kind of a strange thing to scream. I mean, I could see myself yelling profanities or just, like, yelling or freaking out. Yeah, but as of yet, I mean... They're going to capture us. I mean, this... Keep in mind, this is the the first alien abduction that was ever really publicized. So that wouldn't be the first thing that popped into my head. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone just seeing a craft in the sky or, or something unexplained... Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's kind of an odd thing to say. I'd say, like, you know, maybe they're going to kill us or something, but I don't know where right. they jump to. Oh, they're going to take us to capture. I don't know. I'd be asking questions. I don't know. I, I don't think I was... Yeah, I don't think I'd say they're going to capture us, but yeah. who knows? I've never been in this particular situation. Yeah, I mean, whatever it is, they were scared, and 
Barney was trying to drive away, but they saw that this UFO, whatever it was, appeared directly above their car, and that's when things get even weirder. So it was at this point that the Hills started to hear this weird series of either beeping or buzzing noise, and it seemed to almost come from the trunk of their car. And their whole car just started to vibrate, and the Hills felt their tingling in their bodies, again with the tingling. And uh, things get even stranger because after this event, the Hill said that at this point in time, they experienced what sounds like some kind of trance or something. They pretty much just blanked out for a while. So for some undetermined time later, they heard another sound, another round of buzzing sounds, and the couple snapped back into reality. But they found that they had traveled 35 miles south, and they had pretty much no memory of that part of the trip at all. So this is kind of the first instance of a gap in memory or something, which is kind of pretty common with alien abductions now. But like we mentioned, this is kind of is laying the blueprint for all future alien abductions um, up to the modern age that we're all kind of familiar with. Right. I mean, hearing this sort of claim, you know, from recent years would definitely seem unoriginal. And kind of like, oh, you know, you've heard one alien abduction, you've heard them all. But this was the first one, so yeah. everything here is, you know, completely original yeah. to an extent. So after arriving home, the Hills began to feel odd sensations that they could not explain. So Betty insisted that their luggage be kept near the back door rather than, rather than in the main part of the house. Both of their watches had broken at some point during the night and Barney's shoes had all been scuffed up, and he didn't know why. And in typical guy fashion, the first thing Barney would examine was his own genitals to make sure everything was in order. Luckily, everything was exactly where it should be. Betty would discover that her dress had been torn up, and she also saw some kind of this weird pink powder all over her clothes, Um, but she ended up hanging them up on the clothesline, and this powder blew away the next day. Which is kind of a shame. Would have been nice to know what this mysterious powder was and if it existed at all. You know, there there seems to be one explanation. I don't want to get ahead of us, but it could be drugs. I mean, think about it. They're seeing psychedelic flashing lights. They're screaming random things. They're hallucinating. They black out. They're in a trance. They black out. And then there's a strange, mysterious powder all over their clothes. It's like, what have you guys been doing? That's true. It could have been... Yeah, they just did, came back from a vacation, so maybe they tried something new up there. and Trying to keep the party going. Yeah, it hit them on the way back home. They I don't know if much stuff. LSD was around in 1961. Definitely sounds like your typical LSD trip. Yeah, it's a good theory. We can discuss it more once we get to the end of this. So the two would also find some shiny concentric circles that were on the trunk of their car. And Betty and Barney experimented with a compass, and they noted that when they put it on the spot, the needle would just whirl around rapidly, and then when they pulled it away a few inches, it would go back to normal. So, I mean, this sounds really interesting, but again, it's kind of a red flag for me. I don't know what would give them the idea to get out a compass and then put it on that spot. You know, once again, it's kind of the thing now where it's like points where UFO set down, the compasses spin and everything. And once again, this is kind of like the first that gave it, but it's, I don't know, did he just happen to have a compass in his pocket and was experimenting? I just don't know why, what would give them the idea to do this besides that it sounds interesting. 
So later on, both Barney and Betty would draw pictures of what they saw while their memory was fresh, and you can find some of these pictures online if you want. And they just try to put together the order of events that had happened to them that night to see if they could actually make sense of it all. As days went by, Barney was preferring to forget about the whole thing, just let it go. But Betty was on the case, and she was researching as much about UFOs as possible to see if she could get to the bottom of it. So, ten days after the alleged UFO encounter, Betty began having a series of vivid dreams. And these went on for five nights before they finally stopped. And in these dream sequences, kind of went back to the night of their bizarre encounter. And what happens while they were driving home, their car was stopped at a roadblock with mysterious men surrounding the car. And then these men would then force them to walk through the woods and onto a ramp that led to their disc-shaped metallic craft. She describes the men who were forcing them along as being pretty short, around 5 foot in height, and they were wearing blue uniforms that looked military in nature. They looked pretty normal, and they had dark hair and eyes, and but the strange thing about them was the bluish lips and that they had a grayish skin color. So once inside the craft, Betty and Barney were separated and examined, and there was one being who Betty dubbed the leader who told them what to do, and another she called the examiner who would actually come over and look at her body. And though they spoke in English words, it was in kind of a bizarre dialect or just manner of speaking that she actually had a hard time understanding what they were actually saying. So further in her dreams, Betty says the examiner would perform a series of tests on her. Mostly seemed to have just been collecting samples, they got hair and scraped off some skin. But at one point he stuck a large needle into her navel, which caused Betty to scream. By this point the leader walked over and waved his hands in the air and suddenly the pain went away. So after this examination, the beings took them back outside the craft and told them that they could go. Now their car, the leader, suggested waiting until they flew away before leaving, which the couple did. And then after this mysterious craft took off, the couple got into their car and drove the rest of the way home. So this definitely seems like a classic case of PTSD. So you experience a traumatic event, and afterwards you're, you become pretty obsessed with it and bothered by it, and you experience you know, strange memories of it occurring in your dreams. This definitely in my opinion, supports their claim. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, it's kind of like a blocked-out memory that is only coming to her just in pieces in her dreams. So, I mean, my question just from the dreams is that if this did happen, I mean, I was thinking in some way it was could be some kind of secret government or military exercise. I mean, actually, both of them kind of say that these people are wearing, or beings, whatever they were, were wearing, <laughs> were wearing uniforms, perhaps disguises to make them look like aliens or just something unrecognizable. 60s and 70s, I think the U.S. government was into some shady stuff going on, so I could see them kind of performing these weird experiments on people. I could definitely see that too, you know. However, that wouldn't explain us having, in the 60s, the technology of a silent flying saucer. So I think that part of the story is the only part that can't really be explained. Yeah, I guess it could be a mix of maybe it was a military exercise, but then they drugged them or something, so then they started seeing all these weird things. True, true. Because I think if the if the 
flying saucer portion was real and that was caused by the government or the military, that kind of information would probably be declassified by 50 years later. So several years later, the pair actually went under hypnosis to try to deal with their anxiety and see if they could uncover any more details. So when Barney was put under hypnosis, he also describes a similar abduction event where he and his wife are again taken on board of a craft. Like Betty in her dreams, the beings conducted exams and experiments on Barney, including the dreaded but necessary alien anal probing. Barney stated that when the beings tried to communicate with him, that it was through some type of thought transference or telepathy, as they did not seem to have a moving mouth or actually be making audible sounds. Betty also went under hypnosis, and in her new accounts she filled in some of the gaps and the sequences missing from her dreams, but would also go on to contradict some of her earlier memories of the event that came from her dreams. In Betty's statement, she remembered seeing a type of holographic star map on the craft which she would draw upon gaining full consciousness and this map would be studied years later and found that the star alignment from the picture does actually match pretty well with a projected viewpoint from the double star system of Zeta Reticuli however this star map was and remains a highly debated subject on its authenticity obviously as some astronomers and scientists believe there was simply a random picture of stars that she drew that would stand a good chance of matching a known system, while others point to the statistical improbability of being able to draw a complicated map like this that so closely aligns with a real-life viewpoint. So it depends on how many stars obviously were drawn in this map that she allegedly put together. I mean, if it was two stars, then yeah, it would probably be pretty easy to find that pattern somewhere in the universe. However, if it was, you know, a dozen stars, then that would make it a little bit more statistically improbable, like some of the individuals were claiming. Right, yeah, she actually, you can actually look this picture up. I mean, it is around probably a dozen stars, and she has some major stars that she claims were, like, trade routes, and then some, like, minor, so it isn't, it isn't like she put five dots on a post-it note and said there it is it is i mean if you look at it i mean you can say that's just random but it's it does look somewhat planned out after the hypnotic sessions the doctor in charge believed that it was betty's vivid dreams that somehow inspired barney to subconsciously believe that these events also happened to him Barney disagreed, saying that he now fully remembered portions of the night that only happened to him without any influence coming from Betty. One thing to point out, though, is that these sessions did occur several years after the supposed UFO encounter, which could explain how hearing Betty's stories about her dreams over and over again could plant some type of a similar story in Barney's head, whether he wanted to or not. Regardless, the treatment did seem to help the couple's anxiety, though whether what they claim to have experienced in those hypnosis sessions is true is obviously one of the biggest points of debate in this whole case. So as for explanations of what exactly happened that night, there is one claim that suggests that the UFO abduction as it was was simply just a hallucination possibly brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the early 1960s. I mean, to me, this is doubtful. First of all, they're in New Hampshire, where I'm sure there was 
some you know racial motivated stuff. It wasn't. It's not like they were in Georgia or Alabama or anything. Right. If anybody's going to be tolerable of that sort of stuff, it's going to be somewhere up north. And also, I just don't see both of them cracking at the same time from stress. I mean, they're coming back from a vacation from a trip. I just don't see the stress reaching a high point where it'd make them both snap. Well, I mean, think about our shared psychosis episode. I mean, that's certain. That's true. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. You know, if one person has a psychotic break and they're closely tied with another individual in their life, then that can be shared. However, and again, I, I think there's probably some some psychiatric literature out there in the medical world that would suggest this is possible. Uh, stress-induced hallucinations, but I seriously, I, I don't know. I don't really think that I agree with you, Sean. I think that seems kind of improbable in this particular case. Yeah, I mean, if it was stress, I mean, there, I think a more likely explanation is if it was like sleep deprivation or you know something going on in their lives or something that would cause a trigger. But I guess, like you were saying, I think Betty seems to be the primary, and it seemed like she had. A lot more stuff happened to her. She remembered it much more vividly. So perhaps, you know, she was seeing all these things freaking out. And then, as you just mentioned with the shared psychosis, it kind of jumped to Barney um, and little pieces. So he actually remembered or thinks he remembers the same thing going on that night. Yeah, because Barney, Barney didn't seem to be fully on board, so to speak, with the hallucinations at first he, he seemed to be a little bit more resistant to it like he claimed he tried to forget yeah thing right. right and then all of a sudden later on he's he's all all about this experience yeah but again like i said that's it's years later and i mean i kind of think that if you hear your wife go on and on tell, tell these stories to everyone she knows about these lifelike dreams where she's abducted you know it's kind of like things like if if you think of a lie for years and years you start to realize like wait did that actually happen or is like is that true or is that not so I, I can see that kind of the lines kind of blurring after so many years hearing somebody say that she absolutely believes that this happened um so one interesting tidbit is that Betty says that her sister apparently had a sighting with a UFO just a short while earlier and I'm wondering if you know she was stressing out about something if that could have subconsciously affected her you know hearing your family members like oh I saw a UFO and then you know a few weeks later you have some kind of psychotic episode and the UFO just happens to pop into your head and that's what you go with I mean we've been talking about dreams a lot I mean how many times have I had a dream and then woken up the next day or maybe even a couple days later and wondered if what I had dreamed was reality or not have you ever done that yeah. So I mean it's like I think I definitely think it would be a far stretch to think that her sister and her had both experienced UFO encounters slash abductions. I think that would be quite the statistical improbability. However, I definitely think that putting something like that in her mind could definitely have contributed to her maybe having a dream about it and then becoming confused as to whether or not it really happened and then projecting these thoughts onto her husband. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I have one last thing. It's kind of my own theory. I haven't really seen too many other people talk about it. But I was thinking if it was actual, some real type of human abduction and trauma, you know, maybe someone ran them off the road or, or, or just something, attacked them, 
and basically cause the pair to black out that memory. And then Betty, or you know, kind of created a new, more fanciful one that wasn't quite as painful. You know, you'd be, you know, attacked and assaulted by people, and then your mind kind of blocks that out. And then to explain what happens, you're like, oh, if it was UFOs, so it's kind of a mental device to uh, kind of protect yourself. Yeah, I definitely think that's also another reasonable theory that could have some basis in psychiatric literature. I'm sure there's some some term out there to describe an experience like that. And you know the part about them waking up 35 miles south of where they had initially stopped their car. I mean, you know, they could have stopped it, something could have happened, like you said, and then they black out for a while and wake up and, oh, where are we? Well, I don't know, we're probably 35 miles, pick a random number, away from where we had initially stopped the car. I think it could, you know, the thing about reports like this is a lot of times some of the facts are true um, and then the rest is just a, a drastic exaggeration but I definitely think this could all be chalked up to some sort of drug trip that's a good theory yeah so uh, not really buying the UFO aspect to it then I don't know it's 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 definitely interesting it's fun to read and to hear but I think it's just a, a bit too much of a stretch and a bit too convenient and it's sort of in my opinion a little bit too detailed yeah yeah almost like they, they planned it out too much or I mean you could say that or you could say like it's so detailed because it actually happened to them so they can go into that much you know true true but also it's like you know how many years ago did this occur and you remember some of these details about how far you drove, and then being able to draw a detailed star map, you know, years later. Yeah, so that's kind of my issue with it. It's a little too much detail. Very interesting story, though. If you want to look into it, I mean, there's a ton of lot more information out there. Like we mentioned, it's one of the more research cases of any UFO abduction cases. Yeah, definitely one of my favorites. Um, So the next alien encounter is one that involves an individual named Dr. Jonathan Reed. And this was suggested to us by Chris from Twitter, so thanks for the suggestion. This occurred on October 15th of 1996, and Jonathan Reed was walking along a wooded area with his dog, Susie. Suddenly, as with all good horror movies and horror stories, Susie started freaking out, barking, and tore away from Jonathan and sprinted up the hill. Jonathan naturally chased after her, but she had a good head start and seemed to be drawn to something, almost. Finally, Jonathan made it up the hill and saw his dog fighting with some kind of creature, but before he could react, this strange humanoid-like creature just disintegrated his dog. And obviously furious, Jonathan took a big stick nearby and came up behind the creature and struck it in the back of the head. And this dropped and supposedly killed the humanoid creature. And at this point, Jonathan got sick due to this violent and upsetting upsetting event, which seems almost natural. I would probably get pretty sick if I saw my dog get disintegrated by a mysterious being. Now, one of the most interesting parts of this case is that Jonathan documented everything about this scene, and he filmed and took pictures of the alien creature on the ground with 
blood and brains leaking out of its head, and also pictures of the bizarre craft floating nearby, and the powdered remains that were all that was left of his beloved dog, Susie. And you can look up these videos and pictures online and see for yourself whether you believe this is real or just simply some sort of hoax. Yeah, I know a lot of people who watch the video, which you can find like on YouTube or something, and people say like, oh, it's just like a, a rubber suit or something. Kind of reminds me of the um, our Roswell episode again where we saw the video of the people, the supposed doctors of Roswell operating on a alien, but which looks especially suspiciously like a rubber dummy of some kind. Yeah, and, and personally, these, these pictures were not terribly convincing to me i mean the hovercraft looks just like a it could be made of like wood or foam even and just spray painted black and there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of sense to the shape of this hovercraft and the picture of the brains coming out of the back of the alien's head just looks like i don't know it looks like a, a kid's science experiment like one of those plaster volcanoes that you make or something like that not that it's a particularly violent picture, but it just doesn't look very real. So Jonathan wrapped up the body of this alien in a thermal blanket and took it home, again using a video camera to record as he moved the body around uh, using some, some gloves. And again, you can see this video online. I think the most disturbing part is how heavily Jonathan is breathing the whole time. It's kind of a little disturbing. Um, but basically he just goes around just... He has gloves on his hands and moves around the alien's head and kind of pokes at it and stuff. Very blurry. And then a couple more of Jonathan's claims were that government men came to his house to collect the body and the remains of the alien and whisk it away. And then also that a friend of his was killed and that there was also another attempt on his life that was made perhaps by these government officials due to him leaking some of this information. And then finally that these government individuals pretty much wiped Reed's identity clear, including his name and his social security number. Basically like the typical men in black showing up after a, suppo a supposed alien encounter, you know, trying to collect the evidence and make sure he's playing along or else they will basically destroy his life. So one interesting tidbit is that it has been discovered that this Dr. Jonathan Reed is supposed to actually be a native of Seattle, Washington, who goes by the actual name John Bradley Reuter. And he has lived in Seattle, Washington during this entire time that he claimed that he was on the run from these government agents. And he isn't a doctor, he doesn't hold a PhD or anything, and he doesn't actually have any college degrees. So you could say that he's just some bum who created a good story. On the other hand, you could also say that the government conspiracy to discredit him actually did a good job turning him into someone who looked like a, a lowlife. Yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely it could go either way. I mean, in, in my opinion, my knee-jerk reaction is to think, oh yeah, it's just some dummy that's trying to make something out of himself. He's a nobody, and he wants to live this fanciful life where he's a doctor, and he's, you know, experienced this unbelievable story. But at the same time, as far-fetched as it sounds, you know, it's, it's also possible, it's, it's easy for the government to take something like that and just kind of smear somebody's name. 
So supporters of Dr. Reed, and there are a fair amount of them, they actually believe his tale and tried to find tried to fight against those who spread wrong information about him and his case to convince others he is simply a whack job. And obviously with all these cases it's very highly debatable. A lot of people strongly believe, other people do not buy it at all. Kind of go back and forth. I, I don't really buy too much into the the pictures and the videos and that can be obviously staged. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty impressive little piece of artwork you got there, but I don't know, I, I don't want to make any empty claims about my opinions, but I tend to lean towards the hoax end of this story. What disturbs me the most about that, though, is what happened to his dog if the alien didn't kill it. Uh, that's a good question. Did he sacrifice his doggy in the name of this hoax? Or... Did an animal get it, or did the Susie not actually ever exist in the first place? And that's just a, a little story he uses to pull on some heartstrings. That's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, it, it'd be pretty difficult to actually murder your own dog, or... I don't know, I think it's probably completely fabricated. So that wraps up our second abduction of the night story of Dr. Jonathan Reed. Now we'll move on to our, our final alien abduction. This is the story of Travis Walton. Alright, so the story of Travis Walton's abduction was suggested to us on Twitter from Letty, so thank you. Travis Walton was an American logger who claims to have encountered and been abducted by a UFO on November 5th, 1975. On that day, he was working with a logging crew in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest in Arizona. According to his story, Travis was in a truck with several other loggers, and this group was working on a tree-thinning contract in the area. So while riding in the back of a pickup truck, which contained about six of his co-workers, the vehicle encountered a saucer-shaped object hovering over the ground about 100 feet away. So one of the people in the truck described the craft as a luminous object shaped like a flattened disc. Walton and another man estimated the craft to be about 20 feet in diameter. And this flying saucer was making a high-pitched buzzing noise that the men in the truck could all hear. So the workers claimed that Walton seemed to be transfixed at the sight of this craft, and that he took it upon himself to hop out of the truck and to go investigate the craft closer up. So he started to slowly walk towards it when suddenly a bright beam of light shot out from the craft and knocked Travis over on the ground, where he lay motionless. So the other six men had enough at this point and were scared, so they decided to do the honorable thing in driving quickly away and abandoning their friend and co-worker to his supposed abduction and possible death. Not the very best of friends there, leaving someone behind. I'd never leave you behind, Chuck. I might. You'd, you'd die. Yeah, I was going to say. Now, to their credit, after getting some distance away and calming down, the they did regroup and go back up the road where the event had took place, but Travis's body could not be found. So for five days, Travis Walton was just missing. And in those days were marked by unsuccessful searches for him, including the use of helicopters and search dogs. The temperatures in the area dropped below zero for the first two nights of the search, 
which basically created the fear that if Walton was out there somewhere, he would probably not survive the elements. Initially, the other men in the truck were suspects in Walton's possible murder. No one was really buying their story of this UFO and its beam of light over the more practical answer that these guys, you know, either axed him in a bit or accidentally killed him somewhere and just left him in the forest. So to put them to the test, all six men were given polygraph tests. And to everyone's surprise, five of the six men passed the test and corroborated each other's story about this UFO. And the one who did not pass wasn't exactly a fail, but rather his test was just inconclusive. So I think it would actually be a little bit more of a stretch to suggest that six men could all commit one crime as a group and then all stick to the same story without one of them, you know... Flipping. Yeah, yeah, totally flipping and just giving giving up the supposed truth of what had actually happened. If they had, in fact, murdered him. So I... I don't know, there's definitely a certain level of, of, of truth to this um, story. Also, the fact that it did get so cold in this area, you know, even if he wasn't injured, it would be extremely difficult for somebody to survive out in the woods right, in yeah. zero degree weather. I've been out in like 10 degree weather in a sleeping bag and like two layers, and it's miserable. So, Right, and this is five days that he's been missing. Right. So as we mentioned, the days went by and Travis was just nowhere to be found. But this story of this UFO abduction began to spread out from the town and around, and soon it became a national headline. But finally, after five days had passed, Walton would reappear, confused and scared, with these weird memories of these alien entities, and able to describe the inside of their UFO craft. If that were to happen today, and somebody were to disappear and for it to make it, like, all over our hometown, for example, and then five days later show up, that would be absolutely sensational. Like, people would be losing their minds. Yeah. I'd see, like, the Twitter, like, hashtag find Eric or something. <laughs> just like... <laughs> yeah. So, Walton said about the encounter that the bluish-ray beam that had hit him had sent him flying ten feet away... And at that moment, he said the horror was unreal. After that hit him, Walton said he woke sometime later in a hospital, or what he thought was a hospital. But in the room observing him were not human doctors, but some type of creature. So according to Travis, there were three of these beings, and they were looking at him with these luminous brown pupils the size of quarters. And though he was very weak from the damage he had taken, he managed to push one of the beings away and cause it to stumble backwards with ease. So he would say that they felt spongy and soft to him. So bringing himself to his feet, Travis grabbed an unfamiliar-looking tube and managed to scare his captors off with it. So, there's a side point. None of the alien beings we've talked about have been formidable at all. They're all, like, these little five-foot guys. They're basically just push him over or hit him on the head with a stick and they die so well see that seems to kind of that's that's a a common theme and a, a consistency with all these stories that actually in my opinion kind of makes it a little bit more believable so travis went on to scream at the creatures and cause them to stay put so he would get away and once again as we mentioned these guys were about five feet in height so pretty short 
and they had the basic humanoid body appearance. But they were thin, very thin, just puny. What he says, they look like marshmallow-looking skin, so again, not formidable at all. They had these small little hands that were delicate and without nails. They were also totally bald, and their heads were disproportionately large for their little bodies. So once again, kind of the average UFO alien-looking thing with the small body but the big head. So Travis managed to escape from these three little alien dudes and ran into another room. And and there he would encounter what he thought was a six-foot human. So this person, whether it was a human or not, led Walton into another room where three more people put a clear plastic mask over his face that he said resembled an oxygen mask. And after this mask was put on, he blacked out. And Walton says that he does not remember anything after that point until he found himself on the side of the highway with this flying saucer departing above him. So finally, Walton was free. He would walk to a nearby gas station and he would call up his family and tell them that he was okay and to come pick him up. And Walton claimed to have believed that it was actually the same day that he had gone missing. And at first he did not believe that five days had actually passed. So, I mean, physically he was fine beyond a few scrapes and bruises, so it's kind of hard to believe that he was out in the wilderness the whole time, which again leads a little bit of credibility to his story. But due to all the pressure to solve this case, the police wanted to put this hoax to rest, and they kind of forced Travis into taking a lie detector test. So he was still in a state of mental confusion, he was still unsure exactly what had happened, or at least he claimed to. He said he was only recalling bits and pieces of information at first, but uh, over in time his memory slowly returned. So Travis ended up failing his first lie detector test, which showed that, which had signs that he was showing deception. But later on he would go on to pass 12 other tests spread out over the years, one even 18 years after the event took place. So I mean, my question is, was Walton's first failed test the giveaway, and that he knew he was telling a lie, but would just get better at beating the test later on? Or was it that he was just so confused and mental unbalance that his first test should not be counted, and that was all the other ones that were legit? I would kind of lead towards the, the latter explanation. I mean, if you think about it, lie detector tests, they measure the amount of, like, you know, your body's response to adrenaline and, you know, your your pupil dilation and constriction and stuff like that. All this stuff is, is uh, your body's physiological response to adrenaline being released into the bloodstream. And if you think, you know, they're making him take this test immediately after being found, after having this supposed encounter, I, I kind of think that, you know, the first one was just completely botched because he was so altered. There are, you you can beat lie detector tests though, but it's it's odd that he was able to do it so many times unless he knew the secret and could you know ace them all. Right, and so that's why I'm, I was kind of like thinking like was the first one was he just like acting scared? Well, like, see, as an excuse in case he failed it or. Well, see if if I failed one and then went to take another one, I would have so much anxiety that I was going to fail it again. That's that right. I would probably fail. It. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that if you don't count Travis's first lie detector test, then that means you have polygraph tests from six people 
all confirming the honesty of their stories, with only one test being inconclusive. And then later on in the years, all the men would pass future tests. So, I mean, it's either that all these men are extremely good at lying and made up this story, or that they're all telling the truth. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, lie detector tests have become more sophisticated since this event in the 70s. Now, whether that means they're, they, they were less accurate at the time, or that they were more prone for a false negative, who knows. So, as for some of the people who doubt his claim, uh, in the days following Walton's UFO claim, the National Enquirer actually awarded the men a $5,000 prize for what they said was the best UFO case of the year. So, I mean, this fact is pointed out by a lot of the skeptics that's saying that this whole story was just a cash grab that the logging crew all constructed. But, I mean, I just don't see how all these men could inspire to make up this whole thing and stick to the story years later. I mean, you think, like, now one of them could break away and make more money by saying the whole thing was a lie. Right, and $5,000 six or seven ways, I mean big deal who, who cares about less than a thousand dollars i mean that's i mean that's pretty extreme length to go to for a relatively small cash out but you know keep in mind the other thing is that there's there have been you know movies and documentaries about this experience since then and there's a website and these guys have gotten a, t- a ton of publicity right yeah that's true and there's another skeptic Kind of brings up the fact that these alien abduction reports really began after these stories of extraterrestrials appeared in films and on TV. So, so people think that Walton was likely influenced by a NBC TV movie called The UFO Incident that aired two weeks before this abduction, or so he claims. And interestingly enough, this movie was about, in case no one knew by now, the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. Could this movie subconsciously influenced Travis or straight out just gave him the idea to recreate such an event for publicity? Yes. Could be. As you mentioned, that Travis would go on to write a book. Uh, Paramount Pictures would make a movie about his story, which is called Fire in the Sky. I haven't seen it, but I heard it's mediocre. So, I mean, believers can say that Travis is just trying to spread his story around so everyone knows what happened. But then the skeptics can point out that he's just trying to remain popular with his books and movies and just trying to make even more money off his constructed hoax. So uh, all said done, this Walton case to this day is still one of the best known alleged alien abduction stories. Although one in which a large amount of people consider it simply a hoax. So that wraps up this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you enjoyed our episode Close Encounters... Be sure to comment on our website, strangematterspodcast.com, or send us an email at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com, and let us know what you thought of the episode. If you've had an alien encounter of your own, please be sure to share that with us. And also, if you know any other fun factoids about these stories, also be sure to share those on one of our walls. Also, if you're listening to us on iTunes, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us to promote the podcast and take it in the direction that our listeners would prefer. Reminder that Strange Matters is a member of the Darkness Collective, 
and Dark Myths is a group of like-minded podcasts with genres ranging from mystery and paranormal to history and fiction. And we'd like to give a shout-out to the Blurry Photos podcast. And Blurry Photos is a weekly podcast which focuses on topics from Fortiana, history, mythology, conspiracy, and the paranormal, amongst others. So it's kind of similar topics to ours. And they approach each topic with a healthy sense of wonder and humor, and they try to do each one justice with lots of research. So please check out the Blurry Photos podcast. And also mention to another Dark Myths member, the Nighttime Podcast, uh, if you are interested in other UFO encounters and sightings. Um, the host there, Jordan, has several episodes, including one witnessed by his own grandfather. So check out the Nighttime Podcast as well. Until next time at Strange Matters Podcast. Take it easy, everybody. Don't get abducted.